Hello and welcome to this GNNP podcast, which is being released to coincide with our neuropsychiatry special issue. My name is Alan Carson. I'm a consultant neuropsychiatrist, but also one of the associate editors of the GNNP. And it's been a great pleasure to bring together this special issue. I'm particularly pleased about it because I believe it's true to the origins of the journal, which, as many of you will know, was initially founded by the renowned neurologist Kinnear Wilson, and his vision was to integrate differing perspectives from different medical disciplines concerned with brain and neural function, and I feel this neuropsychiatry-themed issue reflects that. Within the issue, we can see a broad range of papers covering a range of actually relatively disparate disorders, including degenerative disorders and dementias, psychiatric sequelae of brain tumours, delirium, and also novel treatments such as the application of transcranial magnetic stimulation. Difficult to say whether there is truly a unifying theme, except that all the papers cover a sort of no-man's land between the traditional fiefdoms of neurology and psychiatry. The consequences of this division between neurology and psychiatry are also reflected in the approach towards considering brain disorders, where, for instance, in the International Classification of Disease, we have separate categories for brain diseases considered neurological and psychiatric. This is not just a matter of semantics, but can lead to considerable confusion and often somewhat irrational divisions. Nowhere is this more highlighted than in the passionate but perhaps relatively meaningless debate over chronic fatigue syndrome. The consequences, largely harmful towards service development and patients of this debate, are described in an erudite editorial by Professor Wesley and colleagues. I think the papers are thought-provoking and they perhaps challenge us to think about how we go about our practice hopefully maybe even encouraging us to learn some new skills or think of new aspects to our professional development and how we might develop the services we offer to patients to make them truly global in terms of covering all aspects of a patient's presentation. I hope you enjoy the issue and find it stimulating. Very pleased to accompany this issue with a podcast recorded in association with the Association of British Neurologists. The podcast is on the assessment and management of functional neurological symptoms, a classic neuropsychiatric disorder calling on skills in both neurology and psychiatry for the benefit of patient management. It's introduced by Clash Batia, Professor of Neurology at Queen's Square. I hope you enjoy it. I think the best thing would be, firstly, to tell you that I'm Kalash Bhatia a neurologist at UCLH, Queen Square, London, and I'm interested in movement disorders. I'm Mark Edwards. I'm a, a senior lecturer and, and consultant neurologist at the National Hospital for Neurology. I'm John Stone. I'm a consultant neurologist in Edinburgh, and I've been doing research and seeing patients with functional symptoms for about 15 years. I'm Alan Carson. I'm a slight interloper at this neurology conference. I'm a neuropsychiatrist, also based in Edinburgh. I've been uh, involved in a research programme along with John as a close colleague over the last 15 years. So firstly, the problem, of course, is making a diagnosis and assessing these patients. And they're difficult patients quite often. And Mark, you see a lot of these uh, patients. The first thing is it's probably just the same way you go about any neurological diagnosis and I think the the key 
feature in these patients is looking for positive clinical features and rather than making it a diagnosis of exclusion so you know because all the tests are normal and can't think of anything better then it must be a, a functional problem and I think probably alongside that is is the fact that I would generally leave the issue of psychological factors in terms of depression anxiety or traumatic events out of the uh, the diagnosis side of things. And that doesn't mean that those factors aren't important, sometimes very important for some people, but I don't think they are a thing which makes the diagnosis. So if you make the diagnosis of a functional disorder just because somebody's a bit depressed, then that's, that's a way in which you're quite likely to get the diagnosis wrong, I think, because those things are very common amongst people who are healthy and also people who've got neurological disease. Perhaps this would be a good option to tell us what do you mean by functional disorder? You know? What I mean by a, a functional disorder is it is a disorder which is defined by some particular clinical characteristics, and that's that often the symptoms are affected a lot by attention. So that means that when the patient is attending towards the symptom, um, it's much worse, and when the attention is distracted, it often is much better or resolves. And also that there's certain incongruities or inconsistencies amongst the symptoms that we know can't be caused by neurological disease. So, for example, I'm thinking about uh, people who have a visual field defect, which is the same diameter close to them or far away. Now, we know that can't happen from the laws of optics, but I believe that that's these patients' real experience. So they're defined on those sorts of positive characteristics, I think, rather than, rather than anything else. Yeah. The diagnosis in many of these cases is quite often mainly clinical. Mm. Do you investigate these people thoroughly? And are you worried that the diagnosis is mainly clinical? You mentioned the term incongruity. Mm. Sometimes things are incongruous because you may have rare things which you do not know about. And are you worried about this? I'm worried about it to the same, same extent that I'm worried about misdiagnosis in, in typical neurological disease, I suppose. I don't think it's you're much more likely to get the diagnosis wrong when you diagnose somebody with a functional neurological disorder. And, and John and Alan and others have done work which demonstrates that neurologists seem to be relatively good at making this diagnosis. But personally, I think it's, it's just as bad, if you like, in inverted commas, to diagnose a patient with an organic neurological disease when they have a functional disorder as the other way around. I mean, other people can come in as well, John. Do you? Yeah, well, I suppose it, it may be worth people listening might not know that these positive signs are now entering the diagnostic criteria for functional neurological symptoms, or it's still going to be called conversion disorder in DSM-5. That's a very good thing because previously, particularly neurologists, when they saw, when they read about these conditions, they saw, well, here's some people with a paralysis or a, a seizure and you're supposed to find a psychological conflict to make the diagnosis. And they think, well, I can't do that because I'm a neurologist. Whereas now the focus is very much on the methods that neurologists have been using for 100 years to make these diagnoses, and they're not perfect, but then no clinical diagnoses are. That's a, that's a good thing for, for neurologists to feel that they can own the problem again. Also for patients that they can see, and it can be very tr transparent about how these diagnoses are actually made. And just again, coming back to the of using the term functional rather than psychogenic or uh, hysteria or so on, maybe again for people who are 
uh, not in the field. Could you tell us why you prefer this term to the others or do you don't have a preference? Or? There isn't a perfect term. So I don't think I'd be sitting here arguing that functional is the perfect term and we should all use it and that's the end of the matter. Whatever term one uses, there are pros and cons. The advantage of the term functional is, firstly, that it's an old term, so we're not, we're not inventing something new here. It's a term that, that maps onto the mechanism of the symptoms rather than the etiology. And that's often how we give terms to other conditions, like multiple sclerosis tells you about the mechanism of the condition rather than why someone has multiple sclerosis. And increasingly, I think people are coming to the view that uh, psychological factors are very important in the condition. Uh, Of course they are, but also there's a a biological perspective as well. So if you use the term psychogenic, is that actually accurate in terms of the etiology? So I think the term functional allows a broader view of etiological factors. I think it also allows it to be more meaningful for a patient in terms of its explanatory power because it allows you to draw things in from a range of different areas and, and use it as John's highlighting in a sort of true biopsychosocial way. Whereas we tend to use biopsychosocial as a code word for actually psychological and we, we drop the bio bit and the social quite quickly. The symptom onset will often come after a physical injury or secondary to actual neurological disease, some form of unpleasant nociceptive experience. And if you have a pure psychogenic model, it's very difficult to integrate that with the patient's own experience of the temporal onset and development of their symptoms, whereas a functional model allows you to describe how these initial pain signals, that sensory motor experience, may have developed over time. It allows you to bring in a range of different factors, so it's a much more heterogeneous model. And I, I don't think you get stuck into that rather pantomime conversation of saying this is psychological, it's all stress. The patient saying, I'm not stressed, and you end up saying, oh yes you are, oh no I'm not, and re- really just grinding the conversation into a halt. I, mean, I think it's, it, it's much more malleable to actually making something that maps on to the direct experience that person's had. There's also the group of people who have, into inverted commas, uh, organic uh, condition who may have in addition, uh, some uh, what we call functional overlay or some additional features. This is particularly difficult. How do you ascertain that? I think it is, it is very important to keep an open mind on the, the cause of symptoms and whether there might be two issues going on at the same time or more than that. I think that's just involved in taking a good history and examining the patient and being open to that possibility and not, not being particularly afraid of it, really. So I mean, you asked earlier about investigation. I would say that I would investigate people in, in what I would think to be you know, appropriate investigations for the symptoms that they have. Um, and I'm not scared that that's going to somehow, if it, the diagnosis is a, is a functional neurological problem, that that's somehow going to make it persist if it's done in the right way. Obviously, endless investigations going on for years and years is a different matter. But I think it's also part of taking that broad approach to patients. So I've certainly had patients where I've made the diagnosis of a functional tremor, for example, and I think I think I was correct in that diagnosis using positive criteria. And then at some point later on, they've gone to develop Parkinson's disease. Now, I think because I t- took the approach with them of, of explaining the problem in a broad way, I didn't frighten the patient off. And when they developed new symptoms, as I'd asked them to, they came back and I re-evaluated them and it didn't make me feel bad that I made the functional diagnosis in the first place because I think they had, had both things happening. 
I think in that regard, we need to think of diagnosis in terms of relative risk. What what is the relative risk of making the diagnosis versus not making the diagnosis at this point in time? And depending what the range of possible disorders is, that, that that will vary for any one condition. But quite often, I think we tend in medicine to be slightly blind to the relative risk of not making the diagnosis at this point in time. So, for instance, patients with dissociative seizures, non-epileptic attacks. If you've got somebody on, say, lamotrigine who turns up in casualty, as many of these patients will, the casualty officer will automatically assume and treat as epilepsy if they've got lamotrigine in their pocket. Um, And we know that there's quite a high rate of iatrogenic death from that. So, you know, I I think we've got to be looking and and thinking of, you know, what are the relative risks in both directions from not taking action at this point in time? And I think you can actually have that as an open conversation. And so in my general experience, patients find that reassuring that you're saying, this is what I currently know. This is why I think we're best to assume it now. But we will keep an open mind. And I think it's that notion that you're willing to revisit if needed is paradoxically more reassuring than saying this is the answer and it's it's now a closed closed book coming to then to the sometimes quite a difficult issue and which lots of neurologists and others you know shun away from of how do you discuss this diagnosis with the patient how do you actually mention it to them and how do you go about doing that and you have a lot of experience with that John yeah well i think Certainly, traditionally, neurologists have found this difficult, but I think it's probably because we've been operating with this wrong model or with this model that's a very narrow view that it's a psychogenic problem and you need to find the conflict. And so people, understandably, just don't know what to say and they and they know that words like psychogenic and hysteria will upset the patient. And if you change your view about the nature of these problems or just alter it, everything becomes a lot easier. And I think the more I... The more I do this and talk to patients, the more I feel that the way that we should give this diagnosis is really not that different, or perhaps no different, to how we give other diagnoses. So how do we give a diagnosis of MS? We start by telling the patient what it is, and we say, I'm sorry, you've got MS, or this is called. Uh, Neurologists are often very bad at doing that. They'll start by saying, it's not Parkinson's disease. It's not, you know, it's not MS. And the patient's sitting there thinking, well, what is it then? Why is he telling me what it isn't? This is a bit odd. Patients pick up on these things and then giving them some indication that you believe them. Now, for many conditions, if you tell someone that you've got MS, well, of course, the patient's not going to think that you don't believe them because everyone knows what MS is. But for these conditions, people haven't heard of them. And I think it is very important, therefore, to, to give some indication that, to the patient that you believe them. And it might even mean saying, I believe you, or this is a genuine problem. And it's really very easy to do that. Patients will breathe a huge sigh of relief to hear that said. It's a very quick thing to do. And, and then actually to show the patient their physical signs. So, so traditionally we've had signs like Hoover sign and tests for uh, distraction of tremor as sort of tricks. And we would, you know, 20 years ago, neurologists wouldn't have dreamt of sharing that with a patient. These were such secret signs that they, weren't, that they, were, par- they were passed down verbally from, from a consultant to junior and not even written in books. But actually what, what I found and, and other colleagues, Mark, is that it's remarkable when you show patients these signs how persuasive that that is. So if you show someone's Hoover sign to, to them and you say, look, when you try and keep your foot on the ground, it's weak, but when you're lifting up the other leg, it comes back to normal. Can, can you feel that? Patients are capable of feeling that and then their relative sees it and you're bringing the 
authority of the diagnosis right back into the consultation and taking it away from the scanner and the tests and all the other places that people think that diagnoses are made. Quite often at this stage the patient says, well, you know, if it was MS or if it was Parkinson's, then there are these treatments. So you're telling me that I've got this disorder. What can you do for it? Yeah, well, it's good. I mean, first of all, I'd say it's good if they've actually moved on to that phase because often often patients get stuck at that initial phase of feeling that the doctor doesn't believe and nothing wrong. So you'd have to be honest and say, look, this is a condition where there's no magic treatment, but there are, and there's no quick fix. And very often patients want quick fix for any condition, don't they? But there are slow fixes for some patients, and these things might work. And here's a list of the following things that might help. It's about persuading the patient that in order to manage this, to try and get better from this condition, they're going to have to work on it. They're going to have to do some homework and try and understand it, because without that understanding, the rehabilitation required won't really work if they're feeling bewildered and confused. And not all patients will be persuaded, but many will, and many more than most neurologists think. You use the word rehabilitation there, and I think that is a very good word to use for patients rather than treatment, suggesting that there's a drug that will take it all away. But I I think people can get their head around the idea of of rehabilitation. That's something they're going to have to engage with. It's going to take a bit longer. And I I think, again, it's a word that tells something to people about the sort of speed and approach that's going to be used that's that's very helpful. So we made the diagnosis, you discussed with the patient, and now we're talking about the rehabilitation or management that's tricky as well. Yeah, well, well, yeah. I mean, I think no, <laughs> I think it is, and I think one has to be open from the outset that there are the range of treatments currently available are not great, and you know, one of the big hopes is that over the next five, ten years, we have more trials, we start refining treatments, we think of novel therapies, and I think going back to where we started the conversation in terms of functional model which widens things out to start looking at mechanisms does open the window for that but i think at the current time the big problem is people have been blocked in terms of treatment into thinking in terms of the sort of 19th century conversion model which applies to some patients probably but systematic reviews are fairly consistent that these types of highly unpleasant childhood traumas or intercurrent trauma in adult life really only affect a minority of patients. And I think we need to start viewing that as a risk factor for the disorder rather than the final causal mechanism. So in much the same way in terms of how we think about the treatment of stroke, if you've got high blood pressure, you're overweight, your risk is increased, but it's not actually the final causal mechanism, and nor is it where you would necessarily direct the first stage of treatment. And I think we need to start looking very hard at the role of things such as physiotherapy. But we may need to be adapting physiotherapy treatments because we know that these, as Mark was saying earlier, are disorders of attention. And typical physiotherapy for paralysis involves directing all your attention to the affected limb. We may be needing to look to modify the treatments to one where you're directing the attention away deliberately from the affected limb. So I think we need to start thinking in a much more sophisticated way about the underpinning mechanisms that allow individual symptom production and having more tailored treatments towards these. I think there is a role for treating comorbid disorders, particularly anxiety. And there's a range of quite effective treatments for anxiety. We should be more upfront about using these. And I think just a general rehabilitative approach, I personally think based around a cognitive behavioural model, will offer some efficacy. But I would like to think that by the time I retire, that we'll have some more 
targeted drugs targeted around mechanisms and particularly aberrant patterns of learning which I think there's increasing evidence to support play a role in these conditions so I think we're at a halfway stage where it's certainly not hopeless there are quite a lot of very effective things we can do in a fairly cheap cost-effective manner and I think just giving a basic diagnosis in a well-made way directing people towards some appropriate sort of self-based strategies some basic approaches with physio and cognitive behavioral therapy will take a lot of people forward a good way but I think we also need to be looking to the next chapter and exploring looking for novel drug therapies novel targets based on mechanisms but I, I think it's actually quite an optimistic condition to treat um, and I mean I, I spend the other half of my life looking at early onset dementias and um, brain injury and compared to that this is, this is a much more optimistic message to be giving and I think you get far far preferable outcomes so um, you know I don't think we should be too downbeat on that side the, the two I think points here which uh, may you know have some difficulty one is that the current uh, you know, cognitive behavior therapy availability and the physiotherapy availability is quite difficult even in the best centers. Would you want to comment on that? Well, I, I, think, I think that's very true. And I think there's a range of reasons for that. And um, certainly within the availability of psychotherapies, I think psychiatrists and psychologists have to bear a lot of responsibility for having been overly precious over the years. And one might speculate on why that is about these therapies. We're quite interested and we've developed a model that's sort of based more around self-help delivery of cognitive therapy over four half-hour sessions so that it is manageable on a sort of population basis in terms of clinic populations. And I think we need to be looking more towards structuring care. Certainly within Scotland, we've developed a stepped care model that we're suggesting that commissioners use in terms of planning health care where you, you triage your help so that you know there's a step one is just trying to make diagnosis and explanation as effective as possible step two with brief therapy and step three more specialized interventions for the harder to treat patients with the idea that you're trying to shift everyone along the outcome curve some way now that sort of approach is not perfect but i think it at least allows some availability of some treatment to the maximum number of people and i think for common disorders across the board, not just for functional disorders. We, we need to be thinking not just about the care of the individual patient, but thinking of care in terms of care systems and care structures and moving towards a more protocolized-based care. And that needs a shift in all the professionals who are involved because I think that goes somewhat against the grain of tending to think of it as, you know, one doctor, one patient you know, we, we have to face the reality. There's I mean, something the very crucial about that model that I think does require a change in attitude or, or thinking about this is that step one of this three-step model is, is the consultation with the neurologist. Mm -hmm. That's the step one of treatment. And neurologists, I think, don't realise that they have, they're in this position to alter people's beliefs and behaviour with a three- or four-minute uh, discussion at the end of a consultation that is cognitive behavioral therapy if you change someone's view that they if they if they go in and they thought they had ms and they come out and they and they realize they don't and they can get better and then they do things differently because of that you have done powerful cbt 
it's, it's a shame that cognitive behavioural therapy is called cognitive behavioural therapy and its first it's sort just, of origin, it was called <coughs> rational persuasion and it was developed by a Swiss GP and I'd quite like to roll back time. It's just, <laughs> it's just getting the patient to think and do things differently yeah. and the reason that I still do this, and people are a bit surprised that I'm sort of interested in this area 10 or 15 years ago, but the reason I still do it is because you, because you meet patients like that, you do something very simple, you explain it to them, and they come back and they've had symptoms for 18 months, and they're better. And you think, well, I did that. And that, that was without any drugs at all, and that's a nice part of your working day. Should this be based more towards centres where you have multidisciplinary teams available and people who get specialised in these, or you see in the future that we can do this at everywhere, in every centre? I think it's, it's, it's probably too common a disorder to say that, well, you can only treat in specialist centres, and I think that runs the risk of just de-skilling people. And, and I think it's something which, like, you know, explaining the diagnosis of Parkinson's disease, explaining the diagnosis of epilepsy, is something that, that all general neurologists should feel comfortable and, and happy doing, and that that's part of their job. I think there is a role for within a stepped care model, like Alan was saying, to 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 have some more specialist centres or or areas where where people are treated. For example, just taking the example of physiotherapy, I mean, a lot of uh, a lot of physiotherapists, neurophysiotherapists, see these patients, and actually, um, I mean, John and I were involved in a survey that showed that surprisingly they were actually quite interested in these patients as well, so they're quite quite up for treating them. But what they didn't like was the fact that they didn't have any support so they'd get they'd had the feeling that these patients were just sort of dumped on them by the neurologist to go and see a physio without a proper diagnosis which makes them obviously very very difficult to treat um, so even within you know uh, within each each neurology clinic it's possible to build links with your local physiotherapy department your local mental health department um, and to, to identify people who have some interest in these patients who you, you can build a good referral to and then obviously if things are not going well there do need to be places where you can then send people on refer people on for more specialist treatments and for more specialist diagnosis because yeah, right. maybe 90 percent of the diagnoses are pretty straightforward yeah. but as you alluded to at the beginning there are some very complex patients where you you you, you know that it will need to be triaged i think okay so one last comment each and then we will wind up this I would just pick up on something that John said earlier, that, that when I first started seeing more and more of these patients, a number of people said to me, oh, it's going to be so depressing, it's going to be so difficult, you're going to get so many complaints. And actually I found it the most kind of uplifting part of my clinical work, actually. I think this is an area where, which, I, which I really hope will be brought back into the fold of general neurology, where it was 100 or more years ago. I don't see why it shouldn't be. I think now's a you know, really good time for that to happen. And for that to be successful, we need research and so we have evidence base of what to do, but also these very practical skills day to day for people to cope with what, you know, with, with what can be a demanding clinical situation. There's no getting around that, but it's, uh, it's one worth trying to fight your way through, I think. I suppose for me as a, a neuropsychiatrist, I, th- I think of it as the ultimate neuropsychiatric or, or brain disorder. I think you've, you've got everything there. You've got the examination skills, you've got the communication skills, you've got the investigatory skills, um, you've got how the brain functions, how we tick as humans. Um, 
you know, from basics of the motor system through to the higher levels of consciousness. And I think it's there's there's plenty there for any keen, young, eager researchers to get their teeth into, and the, the well's not going to dry up of ideas over the next thirty years. So I would encourage them into the field. Thank you very much, gentlemen. That was excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.